suddenly a weak link in Apple's celebrated global supply chain and a blow-up with a key supplier. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. We don't often hear the gory details of failed relationships between original equipment manufacturers and their suppliers. But one that made the news recently was the collapse of a relationship between Apple and GT Advanced Technologies. Apple had contracted with GTAT to supply Sapphire for its new iPhone screens. It was the largest deal that GTAT had ever made, consisting of seven separate contract documents, and it failed in spectacular fashion. Sarah K. Rathke, a partner in the law firm of Squire Patton Boggs, is an expert on manufacturer-supplier relationships. She recently wrote a two-part blog in which she laid out the reasons for the failure of the Apple GTAT deal. She's with us today to discuss that topic, as well as to offer advice to companies on how to avoid similar disasters in their manufacturing deals. She also talks about how smaller suppliers can avoid being run over by giant customers like Apple. So here is my conversation with Sarah Rathke. Sarah Rathke, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. I want to talk, first of all, just as background for some lessons to be learned from what was a very unfortunate uh, manufacturer-supplier relationship that is between Apple and GT Advanced Technologies. Could you tell me a little bit about that deal? And uh, I'd like to kind of dive down into what went wrong. From a legal perspective, probably a number of things. Um, the first is obviously that uh, the supplier, um, GT Advanced, was um, probably pretty excited to be doing business with Apple and therefore maybe didn't take the time that it should have to negotiate an agreement whose terms it could truly live with. From a legal slash technical perspective, a couple of things went wrong with the contract as far as I understand the contract to be, and you know not all of that information has been released to the public, but from what I can tell from the contract, there are a couple key legal pitfalls involved in it. The first is that the contract was a what we call a development contract. In other words, it was a contract to develop a new product that hadn't been used in the way that it was being used in the Apple um, GT Advanced context before, namely... Um, the parties were going to use Sapphire to make iPhone and iPad screens, and that hadn't been done before. And there are a lot of advantages to doing it. Sapphire is apparently a better material, more scratch-resistant, less prone to breakage. It's a good idea. Um, but what the parties did and what the inadvisable aspect of it was, was negotiating the development portion of the contract. In other words, we're going to develop this new technology at the same time that they committed to production terms. So in other words, they agreed to a purchase price, delivery terms, basically everything about the contract before if they before they knew whether the product would work, at what cost the product would work, and how long it would take the product to work. And as it turned out, over the course of the party's relationship, uh, the product didn't work out at the 
at the time and at the technical specifications that the parties had hoped for or at the cost. And so that's one of the things that proved difficult for GT Advanced financially and one of the things that helped drive it out of business. I can see what you meant when you said that they were excited. This sounds like an excited company making some very rash steps at the very beginning. I think the whole world is probably excited. I mean, that is a great new technology. But in the same time, uh, in the supply chain context, both parties have to ensure that they're adequately protecting themselves. And in this case, there was probably a failure on that front. Not to be too critical, I wasn't there, but that is what it seems like from an outside perspective. Uh, Probably the second failure from a contracting perspective is that GT Advanced agreed to to be responsible for certain aspects of contract performance that it had no control over. Um, In addition to making Sapphire what they're they're called bools, um, which would be made into screens and what have you, um, GT Advanced agreed to be responsible for errors and warranty issues in the fabrication process. But of the two parties, it was not the one that controlled the fabrication equipment or the processes. Those were chosen by Apple. So GT Advanced essentially put itself on the line for something that it could not control, that the other party was in control of, and later in the lawsuit came to complain that that was the part of the process that had the most problems. Had GT Advanced had any experience with Apple before? Not that I know of. Um, GT Advanced is primarily a sapphire manufacturer. They also do solar panels, and there's not any evidence in the record that I was able to see that they had previously done business with Apple. Apple had um, gotten its iPhone glass, I think they call it Gorilla Glass, previously from Corning, um, and so it was making a switch for the purpose of developing this new technology. Do you think also it's a question of just Apple just being the biggest company in the world right now, just feeling that it could pretty much dictate terms to suppliers and suppliers had to go along with whatever it wanted? Uh, Maybe, maybe. I'm sure that everybody was excited to be doing business with Apple. Apple may have over-negotiated the agreement. And there was sort of a patriotic aspect of it, too. I mean, everybody is excited anytime things that previously were made internationally, you know, come back and are resourced in the United States. So that was an aspect of this relationship that not only were the parties excited about, but you saw a lot of buzz in the Arizona press and in the Arizona political scene about when Apple and GT Advanced agreed to you know, be doing this manufacturing work primarily in Arizona. Yeah, I just wondered if GT Advanced felt that it was in any position to say no to Apple about anything. I mean, the nature of a of a of a negotiation is supposed to be both sides come to the table with their own demands, and you you reach some middle ground. But I just wonder if Apple walks into the room these days with suppliers and says, hands them a contract and said, here's what here's what it's all about, and they're pretty much in a position of having to uh, having to say yes. Yeah, GT Advance did make that case in the context of its lawsuit with Apple. Um, you know, different people can differ as to, you know, the degree to which a sophisticated commercial party can be forced, but that, that was one of their claims. I guess in the interest of Monday morning quarterbacking, though, Apple was probably not in that great a position because where else was it going to get Sapphire? Who else was sophisticated enough to be able to offer the same terms? Yeah, and I don't know the answer to that question. It is a good question. Um, there is some question in the record whether GT Advance had made specifically this type of sapphire before. So th- there were probably there may have been some due diligence failures as well. But I leave that to the the industry specialists to talk about. Then you have some of the small what what I guess seemed like small details at the time, but turned out to be big ones like uh, power supply. Uh, you point out that there was a loss of power because Apple did not provide a power backup for the plant. 
Right. That was one of the contentions that GT Advance made in the lawsuit, that making these sapphire bulls in ovens, which is essentially how they're made, according to GT Advance, requires a continuous power supply. And if you don't have that continuous power supply, you get contamination and you have to throw out your product. And they ended up having what they referred to as a, a, a bull graveyard or a sapphire graveyard of sapphire that um, was costly. Um, but ultimately couldn't be used in production because something or another had happened to it. And sometimes it was loss of power to the facility in which it was being made. Whose factory was it under the terms of the contract? Under the terms of the contract, the factory belonged to Apple, uh, according to the lawsuit. Again, we don't always get to see all the details of the contract, but that was what the claim was, and I don't see any evidence that it was contested by Apple. Apple was supposed to supply and run the, the factory, and GT Advance was supposed to, well, GT Advance was supposed to run the factory. Apple supplied it, and now Apple is saying, now that the GT Advanced relationship has uh, gone away, Apple is saying that it plans to repurpose the facility for something else. Well, now, clearly neither you nor I is in any position to speak for Apple, and we're not doing that today by any means. But doesn't that seem strange? I mean, up to now, Apple has not insisted on owning the factories. Quite the opposite. Like so many companies, it is outsourced production to Foxconn or whatever, uh, whatever vendor was out there to provide whatever aspect of its products. I'm just wondering why all of a sudden it was insisting for the first time. Maybe it wasn't the first time, but why in this particular instance was it insisting on owning the actual production plant? Um, I don't know. Uh, that would just be speculation on my part. I don't know that it's the case that Apple has never owned the production factory before. It wouldn't surprise me to hear in this case that uh, GT Advance was simply not financially capable of advancing the, the costs to build this um, factory. I believe that Apple at some point alleged in the lawsuit, stated in the lawsuit, that the, the costs of getting the factory up to speed were $1.2 billion. And that doesn't look like it's the kind of thing that GT Advance could have could have itself done. So, so that may be why. So what happened with the lawsuit? Is it still pending or was it uh, settled? It was settled. Um, the parties agreed to a settlement agreement in which GT Advance would pay some but not all of the money that Apple was asking for. And I don't know exactly what happens to GT Advance uh, after this point. It, it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and Hopefully it, it comes out of that, and um, it's indicated an intention to focus on its core business products, which include solar products, so maybe that's, maybe that's the outcome. Hopefully it goes well for everybody, though. Needless to say, they no longer have a working relationship with Apple. Um, I don't know. Life is long, so uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not impossible. Sometimes parties who do fight end up – it ends up, for one reason or another – um, often because they need each other uh, or that one party really is offering a spectacular product that can't be gotten anywhere else. People do recover from this. But it was solely this experience that actually threw the company into Chapter 11 reorganization? I'm sure that on paper it looks more complicated than that, but yes, I would say basically, yes. That, it, that's certainly what GT Advanced argued. All right. Well, those two parties are going their separate ways, and I guess there'll be another chapter someday in that particular story. But let's talk more about the larger lessons that other suppliers and manufacturers can learn. Going into a similar type of deal, what would you advise them to do from day one? What are some of the key learnings, so to speak, that we could take from this disaster? Right. Well, I think the first thing is to really kind of understand and internalize the fact that the world is 
an amazing place, right? I mean, there are new things being developed every day. Every day somebody wakes up and has in their own mind invented the equivalent of the Internet. I mean, every day we have an opportunity, especially now, for something amazing to happen. And parties get really excited about that. And we're not in a situation anymore where Ford at home in his garage solely making a product. Everybody needs a supply chain. But it's important sometimes to, all the time, to curb the enthusiasm for the amazing things that we can do and be careful about how we engage in development work. As I said, I think that the main failing in the uh, GT Advanced Apple situation was agreeing to production terms before anybody had a reason to know how development would turn out. That's a dangerous thing um, because if there's if anything unexpected happens, one party loses. And if one party loses enough, then certainly both parties will lose because nobody is going to engage in an unprofitable contract forever. It just won't happen. When it comes to new technology such as this, are we really talking about this should be done in, as a two-step project, two separate contracts, one for development, one for production? Um, or can they be approached at the same time in any way at the, at the outset? I think a two-step process is ideal, but that's just me, and that doesn't always reflect the realities of people's industries or, or commercial lives. And so there are ways to do it at once, but a supply chain contract that contemplates both development and production stages ideally should allow for a renegotiation based on objective measures, um, should leave some factors perhaps to be determined after development is is figured out, should be cautious about agreeing to sort of the primary commercial terms of production, and those would include, I would say, price, delivery, warranties, and indemnity obligations. Uh, so you can do it both stages at once, but those commitments should not be hard and fast if you have any reason to be concerned that you're not going to be able to make the product at the at the price technical specifications or timetable that that the parties are contemplating when development starts i guess the world being what it is there's no way that you can foresee every possible problem that could arise from a complex relationship like this and yet i guess there are certain things you still need need to build into a contract. So what should you do? Should you anticipate, like, create a series of milestones and say, well, at this point, if we're here, we do this. If we're not, we do that. I mean, somehow build in some expectation of problems, even as you understand that you're never going to be able to anticipate all of them. Yep. And that's, uh, that is one way that parties do it. And Bob, that's a good suggestion that uh, some having production milestones at regular intervals forces parties, and this is a good thing, um, it forces parties to assess whether this thing is really working before a small problem becomes a big problem. And it's good to involve as many constituencies within your own co company in that determination and in sort of the observation process as you can, right? Because sometimes engineers get addicted to the engineering process and don't include the commercial realities in their decision-making the way that they should. Same with supply chain. Sometimes they're less flexible than they should be if left solely to their own devices. So the more people that you can get into a high-value development contract or development process at your company and at your counterpart's company, the better off you really are. And I, I'm saying this understanding perfectly well that this requires companies to dedicate more resources than they typically do and that they sometimes feel are economically justified based on the circumstances, but for high-value development projects particularly, it does tend to be worth it. In my experience, 
um, the cases that go to trial and the cases that get involved in extremely expensive litigation are not the ones that were monitored well. Is it ever a good idea to hold the vendor responsible for production quality and the operations of a plant that it actually doesn't own? Um, you know, the world is a big place. There may be situations in which that is appropriate. That's just not something I see very often. So I'm not going to commit to an answer. It, it strikes me as unusual, but it's a big world out there, so you never know. One of the issues you brought up in your blog uh, post about this was the problems that that crop up with product integration. If you're creating a particular product that has to be integrated into other components, I'm, I'm wondering what are, some of the, what are some of the things you need to worry about there and how you can head off problems that are, might arise from that. Sure, and this is often an issue in high-tech products, whether it be electronics, consumer electronics, medical devices, things like that. Um, what happens that a supplier is supplying its widget, um, and it's a complicated widget, and the widget is going to go into the greater product and it's going to interact with other people's components. And how the product, how, how my widget performs is going to depend on a lot of those interaction points. And so in, that, in those situations, it's important for me to know as the supplier of the widget um, what the interaction points and how they're going to affect the performance of my product before I sign up to warranty or, in, or indemnity obligations. Because if something that's beyond my control impacts the performance of my product, I want to know about that before I agree to a, a liability level based on that. Now, this becomes even more difficult when you add, when one of the interacting components, so to speak, is software. Um, and if software is driving a machine and you make part or all of the machine, that's, that's a whole nother level of components that can, that can affect the performance of the, the component that you are supplying. So that's just something to be careful about. I'm, you know, obviously not making the case that people shouldn't supply components in a situation in which they're going to be interacted with by other items. Obviously, that's what many people do all day long. But just be aware that you can't guarantee the performance of your product without understanding the environment in which it sits. And part of it really is just environment. I mean, sometimes for electronics, temperature, moisture, exposure, things like that can be an issue. Um, this is stuff you need to know before you promise a certain performance level. One of the things I find interesting here is that we've been told that one of the problems with offshoring all the way to China for so many U.S. manufacturers is the communication links that kind of fall apart because of distance. And yet here we have an example where there was virtually no distance at all. It was right in the same country. So I guess we shouldn't assume that the main problem that might arise from a supplier-manufacturer agreement is simply that of distance. No, uh, yeah, they were actually in the same building, but distance, yeah. <laughs> so. the point about China is not wrong, though. Distance can impact the ability to communicate well, as can cultural differences and language differences. And with the example of China, there can be a tendency for Westerners to give less specific instructions than um, are expected by their counterparts, and that does cause problems a lot. So many aspects of this particular contract and other contracts like it seem to involve wielding a stick. But what about the carrot? What about building incentives and positive aspects into a contract that encourage the supplier to perform at high levels? What would you advise in that way? I mean, I would be all for it. I don't see that happening on the ground very much. And I think that maybe the product of sort of supply chain personnel education up to this point, but I, I've my sense is that that's changing. I think that that would be beneficial. I don't see it 
very often in practice, however. Uh, even when it kind of looks like a carrot, it's often a stick. You know, in the auto industry, it's often phrased like we are offering incentives for you to reduce your cost of production suppliers. But really, in reality, what it is is we're going to impose a, you know, X percent reduction in price every year, and hopefully you work it out on your end. And the so. incentive is you get to keep our business. Right. You know, that's about that's about the uh, the carrot, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm for it. I don't see it very much, but I'm for it. I, I think that would be productive. What about oversight over the life of a contract? You know, the idea of just signing it and hoping everything is going to go well when it almost never does. Are there ways in which you can revisit a relationship on a regular basis, sit down and say, well, how's it going? Do we need to revise according to reality? Stuff like that. Would you advise companies to do that periodically? Uh, yes. And I think that many do have ordinary check-in points um, during, whether they be monthly or weekly or you know quarterly or what have you, particularly for larger, more high-value contracts. I mean, obviously, you don't see this in the production of screws and bolts, but but for more complicated products, there do tend to be regular engineering, anyway, checkup points. And I think that that's a good thing. As for providing for a way of actually renegotiating the contract, that can be done at any time in any contract that's governed by American law, um, the law of any state in America. But the reality is that unless the contract specifically provides by its terms for renegotiation pursuant to objective factors, at specified intervals, it probably won't happen, right? Because the company petitioning for the readjustment is at a disadvantage, which necessarily means that the company, the other company, is at an advantage. Yeah, difficult also. I guess this kind of gets back to that question of the incentives and the carrot versus the stick, and I think you probably answered it to a certain extent already, but I'm wondering if this concept of gain-sharing comes into play at all because companies talk about it. They like to bandy that word about as well as the word collaboration, that if we reach certain levels, we all benefit somehow. Again, is that a little bit too much of a kumbaya kind of attitude that doesn't really fit with the real world of contract law and negotiations? Um, no. Uh, contract law is premised on the negotiation that people can agree to whatever it is that they want, and there are virtually no limits on that proposition. So the restrictions on that happening in reality are not those imposed by contract law. Uh, that said, you're perfectly right. I don't see that very often in my practice. And the reason is, I think when the rubber hits the road, um, in the contracting process, people are principally on the defensive. And I'm not even sure that that's a bad thing exactly, but you need a lot of trust. Um, you need to have a history with each other for that kind of game sharing concept to make its way into the contract rather into the contract negotiating and writing process rather than just administration. And I think that's understandable to a, to a very large degree. And then finally, I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the relative size and power, uh, the dynamic of these two companies that are working together, Apple and GT Advance. But what basic advice would you have for a small to medium size supplier who is very excited and yet suddenly finds themselves in the room with Apple, with General Motors, with Walmart? You know, all of these big companies are basically just used to dictating terms. I mean, it's hard to see how you're going to come out of that in any way other than what what the OEM wants from you. Can you give some advice on ways you might protect yourself or ways you might approach that if you don't have that power walking into the room? Uh, yeah. Um, and my advice would be you need to create a structure by which you can curb your enthusiasm to protect yourself um, because that's your primary duty. 
So you need to get yourself a committee of stakeholders within your company, um, a, a, a wide range of stakeholders within your company, so that there's a greater likelihood that somebody will say, whoa, 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 slow this down. Let's not do this if you're walking into something that, that, that's a bad idea. And you may even take on a third party. You'll probably have outside counsel, and that's a good idea. But you may even want to take on, and there are folks who do this, um, supply chain experts in industry who can look at this objectively and give you sort of an opinion, like like the equivalent of an opinion letter, whether or not you have lost your mind uh, in agreeing to terms with a, you know, with sort of the big guy on the block. Because you don't want to do that to yourself. I mean, it is exciting to be faced, you know, for the first time with your the first time GM walks through the door. That is very exciting, and the natural human inclination at that point is to just get the deal done. But you don't want to you don't want to become the GT Advance story. That's actually nobody, not one single person, won in that story. Well, I guess the positive aspect of it is that it does present us with some valuable lessons for other companies going forward. Sarah Rathke, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today and helping us to understand some valuable lessons for suppliers as they involve themselves in relationships with large OEMs and and manufacturers and retailers. Thanks very much for being with us. And thank you so much, Bob, for having me. That was my conversation with attorney Sarah Rathke, offering advice on how to write successful and lasting contracts between manufacturers and their suppliers. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.